0: Don't wait. Visit sonobe.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save.
2: Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, psychic phenomena, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. or tvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next, we meet here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember, Exxon Nation, keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in
3: the light.
4: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Um, This is Dr. Laurie, and I'm sitting in for Patty Conklin, and welcome to Healing Within. Um, This is a show where we talk about all kinds of uh, spiritual, psychological, and physical healing for um, all kinds of conditions, many of which are not really being reported properly in the mainstream media. And so I am delighted today to welcome as my guest, Uh, sherry botwin Uh, sherry sherry uh, is spelled s-h-r-i not sherry i say that because i have a counselor i have a cousin named sherry so it's sherry botwin has been counseling survivors of all kinds of trauma in her cherry hill new jersey Mm -hmm. private practice for more than 22 years her new book thriving after trauma stories of living and healing shows readers through personal stories how many who have experienced the worst kinds of trauma have gone on to post-traumatic growth. She has been interviewed on ABC, NBC, CBS News, CNN, the Associated Press, and the New York Times. Um, she is an esteemed expert in this so very complicated field. So, Shari, welcome, and thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really enjoying reading your book, And I think it touches on some things that um, are so important right now. Uh, It didn't get much attention, but last June, which is uh, Post Traumatic Stress Disorder Awareness Month, uh, the National Institutes of Health declared that PTSD is a national epidemic with 44 million people um, reported to be struggling with the um, symptoms and signs of PTSD. And that population includes six million veterans. And so we have a huge population. And as you know, as a therapist, that only represents a fraction of people who actually have this condition because not that many people uh, come in for treatment. And so they, they live with the horror of this without ever knowing that they have a condition that can be treated. Uh, What are your thoughts on this?
5: It's funny that you say that. I was just actually talking to somebody yesterday that I met for the first time, and she clearly has lived through trauma, and she clearly struggles with PTSD, but she really doesn't even understand that. So I think one of the things that I'm really trying to work on, and I'm hoping that we all can keep working on is is educating and informing the public about what trauma is and what is post-traumatic stress disorder so that people who are walking around struggling can identify it and then do something about it. We still have a lot of work to do when it comes to that part of the issue. Oh, Absolutely. And
4: in, in, uh, something I'd like to add, you know, as a former news person, I spent uh, 20 years in newsrooms and 25 years as a full-time journalist. Um, there is something called vicarious traumatization, mm-hmm. VT, uh, and it, it applies according to the psychiatric manual, the DSM-5. It, it can apply to people who spend hours of their day watching disturbing images or footage or video. It used to apply only to people who worked in, say, co- police or coroner communications departments uh, who would have to watch videos or films of of uh, tragic, uh, tragic deaths. Uh, it used to apply to journalists on the front lines or people in newsrooms. But now millions of us spend hours a day just looking at our devices, cell phones, tablets, screens. And so we are unconsciously and and tacitly taking in the disturbing data for hours a day. And so I, I really believe that, that, that the count of people who have a secondary form of PTSD is actually a lot more than 44 million. What are you observing in your practice?
5: So... Recently, and I think since since it, it became 2020, it's only been two months, and I think already we've been inundated with stories about sudden loss, about the Weinstein trial. Now we're being inundated with stories about the coronavirus. So I think what's happening is images are so... so quick to, we're so quick to find them. Sometimes when we're on our phones, we're not even looking to hear about these stories. And I go and turn on my phone and I look in my newsfeed or I'm on social media and all these different stories and not just the stories, but people's reactions to these different stories. And I think what's happening, especially for people who already have difficulties at home, who are dealing with histories of trauma, who are dealing with illness in their family, people who are dealing with combat as part of their background. I think what's happening is we can't get away from horror. We're so inundated with images and stories that it's hard to even implement self-care because I think when we're trying to go about our day and be in the present, the, the different thoughts and feelings and stories that we're being informed about, they're everywhere. So it's almost exactly. like people want to hide more and more. People are more anxious now than ever. People are talking about not wanting to leave their homes, not wanting to be in relationships, all these different things that we already struggle with anyway. And I think now more than ever, we really are being hit with where people are really grappling with just enormous amounts of anxiety, fear, and it's making it really difficult to just be in the moment.
4: Well, I think you have hit on a very important point because the uh, statistics last year show that anxiety is uh, through the roof uh, statistically. Um, I think it's well over 100 million people are on medication. Have been diagnosed with anxiety and PTSD is an anxiety um, disorder or, or condition, and it's it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Um, it, even if you're not looking for it, it flashes in front of you. The images are constant, and you know, as I write in in my book, The Five Gifts, we instinctively tend to want to swipe it away. But in swiping it away, we are escaping and, and burying our heads in the sand. And when something traumatic or life-threatening, or we witness um, even a near miss on the road where we're seconds away from an auto accident, and we we come face to face with our own mortality, um, having to to face the tragedy and and the sudden violent losses that are being presented to us all the time um, really makes it difficult for people because we tend to escape. And then when it happens to us, we can't change the channel. We don't know what to do. How do you cope with uh, experiencing directly a near miss or witnessing or living with somebody who has been through um, sudden and violent um, experiences uh, for when we'll talk about sexual trauma specifically a little later on in the show, but um, can you help our listeners? What What are the first things that you would say to somebody who has just recently say come back from combat or recently experienced um, some kind of traumatic event?
5: You know, I think the most important thing is to talk about what happened as much as we want to run and not face the horror, not have to digest and know what happened. In order to prevent long-term, complex, con- chronic, post-traumatic stress, it is just so important to begin processing what happened right after it happened. So I think what I try to talk to people about is doing the opposite of what feels instinctual. Our instincts are to run, to, to push things under the rug, to not have to keep reliving what just happened, but in order to not relive, in order to not be inundated or live a life in fear and in despair and in grief, we really do need to address it. So I think the idea of speaking and talking, really for any kind of trauma, but especially for somebody who's just come back from war, I work with people who were serving in Iraq, 30 years ago. And when I talk to one person specifically that I did write about in the book, whenever we begin to talk about him witnessing his best friend being killed, he fills up with all kinds of feelings, mostly just deep sadness and horror about what he saw. And I think part of what I feel every time we talk about it is he, he is expressing 30 years later, what he felt 30 years ago and if somebody had sat down with him and helped him and supported him and got got him to be able to figure out how to deal with what just happened, he, when he talks about it in 2020, it wouldn't be as painful. And what happens, I think, for people is when they don't talk about what, what they just saw in combat or when they don't talk about the shooting that they survived, the longer you keep these thoughts and feelings inside the more likely you're then going to turn to drugs and alcohol and different forms of reckless coping strategies anything to just not have to know to not have to remember and of course that's not a life that anybody wants to live
4: i think that's that's very wise and one of the um, emotional first aid tools that uh the, the Critical Incident Stress Foundation, which works with first responders, and there's a whole movement um, in the first responder community worldwide to debrief after, uh, say, a baby dies in your arms and you're in a rescue, uh, you're, you're on a rescue crew, um, or you're a firefighter and you weren't able to save somebody, or you're a uh, police officer. I had a police officer who I worked with for a couple of years who had... Um, he had had to shoot somebody because uh, that person was trying to kill him and he had flashbacks you know many years later so i think you know one of the first things that that we say to people is don't isolate stay with other people
6: Patty Conklin grew up in Brooktondale, New York with a unique ability. Unlike others, she could see how the vibration of words and emotions affected the physical body. She discovered how to release stored emotion and facilitate healing. This began today's Conklin method of cellular cleansing. The private practice grew with tremendous results, as did her reputation. More and more people sought her out, bringing her into the home for healing. She soon realized she could even teach this to others and they could shift perception and thus prevent illness from occurring. Patty Conklin quickly became a frequent keynote speaker and she developed a curriculum for teaching the Conklin Method of Cellular Cleansing. For more information, visit pattyconklin.com, P-A-T-T-I-C-O-N-K-L-I-N, pattyconklin.com,
7: the we're going family style deal.
8: Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter Pounder.
3: I'll try your filet of fish.
8: There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other
6: offer. Call 404-474-0086. That's 404-474-0086.
4: Welcome back. This is Dr. Laurie, and I'm sitting in for Patty Conklin on Healing Within. Um, my guest is uh, Sherry Sherry Butwin, uh, who is a trauma counselor and expert. Our new book, Thriving After Trauma: Stories of Living in Healing, um, talks about uh, personal stories of people who have survived uh, trauma. And uh, as we were talking about before, PTSD is a national epidemic, and we know of 44 million people, according to the National Institutes of Health, who struggle with, uh, with this condition, um, the The primary criteria for trauma is that you have been close to or survived or witnessed a life-threatening experience that was sudden and unexpected, and that it left you with a feeling of horror and helplessness. And horror and helplessness can can live literally in your cells because all of our emotions are stored as molecules um, in the limbic system, which is part of the brain where all of our emotional history is stored and all of our emotions originate chemically or biochemically as molecules. And so I think for me, um, I like to say to people when they, somebody says, well, I had a really bad argument with my kid and it was so traumatic, that trauma is uh, not a bad argument, no matter how upsetting that argument may be. Uh, trauma is not a bad hair day. Trauma means that you have come face to face, mano a mano, with life and death, and it has left you feeling shattered. I have a little quibble with the diagnosis of uh, post traumatic stress as a disorder because, Mm -hmm. as the Red Cross tells people who have survived or who are waiting to hear about whether a loved one survived, um, your reactions after a sudden violent event, whatever they happen to be, uh, are not abnormal. You're a normal person having normal reactions to an abnormal situation. So Shari, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think PTSD should be a psychiatric condition, um, as it's officially called, as, as you mentioned in your book? Or or, or could we call it a, a an issue or a condition that people have to kind of take some of the stigma away?
5: Yeah, I think it's so important that you address that. And I'm glad that you're saying that. I, too, also struggle with the idea of, idea of calling it a disorder. I think of it more as, like you're saying, an issue, a reaction. And to me, when somebody goes through something horrific and then they're left feeling horror, they're left feeling afraid, despair, I also think that those are normal reactions. When something awful happens, it would not be normal to just sort of go about your day as if nothing happened. I think post-traumatic stress disorder, the stigma around being being diagnosed with it, it's more about, it's not that something's wrong with you, it's that something awful happened to you or something happened exactly. awful to somebody you love and you're responding to that. And that to me is not a disorder. So I think it's important to address that and to say to people, There's no shame in saying, yes, I struggle with PTSD. I know I talk about the fact that I'm in recovery and that I was diagnosed or could identify myself as having post-traumatic stress in my mid-20s. And I don't think there's anything to feel ashamed about. I think it makes sense based on the experiences that I've had. And it makes sense based on the experiences that patients or people that you're talking to are reporting and it's okay to say that. There's nothing abnormal about that.
4: And I think it's really important, you know, for healing and recovery, um, just as it is, you know, somebody's recovering from an, an an addiction, which is in part, you know, a physiological condition. And I think that, um, you know, normalizing the stigma is going to be a very important piece of kind of changing the narrative. People think that uh, PTSD is something that combat survivors um, have, because that's what we see in the movies. Uh, when, As I write about in, in uh, my book, uh, I was a young reporter in Chile um, during uh, the military had, had uh, taken over, and there was a state of siege, and there was a curfew, and... Machine guns were going off and people were getting arrested by plainclothesmen in the middle of the night. And uh, I was doing a story for Newsweek and the person I was interviewing uh, didn't like me, didn't like reporters and informed on me to the head of the Air Force. And so I was living with the family of a political prisoner and they hit me for a few days until I could get out of the country. And that experience uh, haunted me in ways that I really didn't expect because a year later or so I found myself in New York City. I woke up in the middle of the night, I was curled up in a fetal position under my bed because a truck had gone over a manhole cover down like 11 stories below me and I was shaking and crying and I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder At that time, and that was in the mid-1970s, when very little was known about it. And um, I I do have, um, I call it intermittent uh, Mm -hmm. hypervigilance. There are times I do have this startled response where my body feels hot-wired and I feel like I'm going to jump out of my skin. And in working with people uh, who have these reactions, um, how do you help them to identify how physical it is to be living inside your body when your cells don't feel safe.
5: So I talk a lot with people about the idea that trauma of all different forms, we store that in our bodies. We -hmm. find a way intellectually to either dissociate or disconnect, but it's virtually impossible to disconnect from the memories that we're storing in our bodies. And what you're you're talking about right now is the idea of our safety and feeling as though our safety is somehow threatened. And I think once you've had that experience, what can happen is anything associated with that unsafe time will be triggering something like what you're describing, hearing a loud truck or fireworks i know july 4th is a very trigger triggering yeah. holiday for many people even people who haven't lived through violence even people who yeah. are abuse survivors whose whose dads came into their bedrooms in the middle of the night so one of the things i try to help people understand is that the more we find words and the more we can name these feelings and understand that what we're feeling in our bodies is partly from the memory once we can recognize that and separate that was just a truck going over a big hole. That's not actually a sign that I'm unsafe. Once we, we tag these feelings and we, we put them in perspective about where they're coming from, then we can find ways to put our feet back on the floor and feel grounded and safe in the environment that we're in now. Now
4: I think it's a really important point that you know, we're, that, that you just mentioned, that the physiology, if you can name it, um, if you can give it a shape and a color, um, if you can ask that area of your body that is uh, reacting, um, say you get knots in your stomach or your, your heart you know starts to flutter, ask your heart or ask your stomach what color would help you to feel safe right now or what color do you need to feel better and just breathe in that color and let that color find its way that part of the body and and kind of suppose you want to breathe in blue and that is going to help calm your physical sensations down. Um, As you exhale, you can release any symptoms that you want to get rid of from your body by breathing out a different color. So you inhale a soothing color and the trick is really to ask your body what do you want or what do you need rather than imposing a color from your head. Because sometimes your body may want red, sometimes it may want green, it can change. And if you just inhale that body, remember, the the mind is like an iceberg and the tip of the iceberg that, that we can see that's above the water represents the part of the self or the part of the mind that we are aware of. And this is who we think we are. But the majority of who we are, like the majority of the iceberg, is beneath the surface of our attention or consciousness, which is why we call it the subconscious or the unconscious mind. And the unconscious mind has all of the wiring to our physiology. And so that mind-body connection, that link, uh, all of our emotions are stored as chemicals. And when that memory, that memory molecule gets triggered, it uses our body as a signaling field. And so it's really important if you can identify where in your body you're having this reaction and ask, what do you want? Breathe in a color. And color breathing is something that will take the edge off very, very quickly in addition to, as Sherry said, naming uh, naming what you're feeling as well. So that's very, very important. We want to be able to get away from the, the re-experiencing. When your body is feeling the trauma, even if it's 30 years later, you will start to re-experience it as if you're looking out through your own eyes and it's happening
5: around you again, that's a flashback. Yep. And you know what? I also like to try to remind people we don't have control over what we're feeling, but we get to decide what we do with the feeling once we, we recognize we're having it. Absolutely. So it's like, uh,
4: you know, you can, you can change the channel in a way. You, you can't change... The event, but you can change how you perceive your reaction to the mm-hmm. event in the moment. Mm-hmm. So instead of looking at it through your own eyes, you can um, you can you can see an image of yourself as you were at the time, five years ago, ten minutes ago, mm-hmm. twenty years ago, and you can you can even make that a black and white image. you can put it on the wall, you can make it smaller and further away so that you know that you, here in the present, you are safe in your own skin. And of course, there are many modalities that I know you work with and I work with, including...
2: uh... ...audience. If you have seen a UFO, had a close encounter, seen a ghost, Bigfoot, lake monster, or a story that you would like to share or have investigated, contact me, Rob McConnell, by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com, or you can call toll-free 1-800-610-7035 extension 143 and on Skype, Exxon Radio TV. For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exxonradiotv.com or www.exxonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next, we meet here in the X-Zone from our
7: broadcast... We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2.00. Price of participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal, single item at regular price.
8: Now it's time for a plant fact. Roses are one of the oldest ornamental plants in cultivation, with a history going back over 5,000 years. The philosopher Confucius wrote about them, and Roman emperors treated their guests to dining on carpets of rose petals, with thousands more raining down from above. Become a part of this epic history by planting a proven winner's rose. Just look for the white containers at your local garden center or visit provenwinnerscolorchoice.com.
2: Center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember Exome Nation. Keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light.
6: Join Patty Conklin and Healing Within Radio each week. More than entertainment, Healing Within offers educational, useful tools for everyday life. Listen for help overcoming fear, anxiety, and depression. Patty knows about eliminating cancer, MS, dementia, Parkinson's, and a host of illnesses that we face every day. Life can be good. Life is good. All you need are simple tools to start changing your life. Start right now by visiting pattyconklin.com. P-A-T-T-I-C-O-N-K-L-I-N. No matter where you are in the world, you can work with Patty through Skype, phone, or in person. Visiting one of her retreats in Georgia. Visit pattyconklin.com today. Or call our offices at 404-474-0086. That's pattyconklin.com. Or call 404 404-
9: Coming soon to the Exxon Broadcast Network is A Different Perspective with me, Kevin Randall, as your host. We'll be taking a close look at what is happening in the world of UFOs today with side trips into the paranormal. Guests will range from those who are household names to those who have a different perspective on a variety of topics. No topic will be taboo, but there will be tough questions asked as we all search for the truth about UFOs, the paranormal, and those things that excite us. Sometimes we'll agree with a guest and sometimes we won't, but we'll try to keep the program topical. For those of you who would like to read, be sure to visit www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and remember to listen to the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at www.xzbn.net.
4: Hey, welcome back. This is Dr. Laurie sitting in for Patty Conklin on uh, Healing Within. Uh, we're speaking with Shari Butwin who is an expert in trauma. Great privilege, Shari to have you on the show. Her new book is Thriving After Trauma: Stories of Living and Healing. Um, wanted to move into sexual abuse. Um, it's a huge it's a huge issue for any woman who has worked anywhere. Um, I can tell you, when I started working in the news business in the late 60s, um, there was no such thing as sexual harassment. It didn't exist as a term. And men did not want women working in the newsroom. Some places I worked, they didn't want women working at all. And so the uh, verbal hazing and the touching and the groping and the propositions and the slurs And the gender slurs like, um, oh, you know what they're like when they get their periods, all of these put-downs. I mean, this was just part of the hazing that you endured for the right to hold a job. Um, You've written very eloquently about the Cosby case, and I wanted to quote from the uh, editorial that you wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer, where I believe you you are um, a columnist. Is that true?
5: I, I offered op-eds for the Inquirer during the trial.
4: Uh, excellent. Excellent. So you, you have this wonderful, uh, very, very beautiful and eloquent paragraph. It says, the Cosby case and the media attention surrounding it send the valuable message that no one, no matter how widely esteemed, should be allowed to hurt another person without being held accountable. And you say, Cosby's alleged victims are in evident pain, and some observers might find themselves feeling very bad for them, but they do not need pity. They need to know that people are listening to them and believe them. How do you think that the Cosby trial kind of opened the way for this kind of tidal wave of the Me Too movement, which has recently led to the Weinstein trial, um, and, and uh, even last night, uh, the firing of uh, Chris Matthews, who's highly regarded and highly respected, although having spoken to, um, a couple of women who had worked, um, in that network, uh, apparently he did have, uh, a reputation behind the scenes. Uh, what, what's your take on what the Cosby trial has given us in terms of an awakening?
5: You know, I think, and I think even before the trial, even when some of the women went on Dateline in 2020, what was happening is that they were talking about things that happened to them, and the world was listening, and while they, they too, dealt with so much defamation and victim shaming, all of that stuff existed, there were also all these advocates and survivors around the world who were feeling somehow like it was okay to speak, By them stepping forward and and sitting in a trial and testifying and confronting a man with so much power, I think what it left people feeling like, even before the verdicts came in, it leaves people feeling like finally somebody's listening, finally somebody believes us. I know when I was at the trial, we talked a lot about that as we were sitting in those hallways, what felt like for years waiting for the jury to come back with the verdict we were talking about the verdict itself. While that was important, of course, what was more important was that this story was getting attention from the media and people all over the world were watching survivors and people who've been through awful experiences. They were watching them speak and be heard and they were watching them stand up to their abuser. And I think that was so empowering for so many people around the world. I know for me, It lit a fire under me it made me feel like you know what if they can sit there in a courtroom and talk about the worst times of their life then then I certainly can be talking about things that happened to me or I understand even more now why the work I'm doing and being a witness and listening to others how valuable and how important and how healing that can be
4: oh it's incredibly powerful uh, to be able to validate that again, to go back to the definition of horror and helplessness, and when uh, when I see and when I when I listen to of uh, the accounts of women who were um, raped by powerful men in the business, um, I think about my own horrifying and helpless experiences, and I'm laughing not because it was funny but because um there's just the these these memories are acutely present and in fact there was one that resurfaced that i actually hadn't thought about uh where a producer had um exposed himself underneath the tablecloth at a new york restaurant and attempted to put my hand on his erection and i started screaming and he turned bright red i still remember he had a bald head like harvey weinstein And I went running out of the restaurant. And when the Me Too movement started, I I, I had a flashback, as many professional women my age did. And I remember going to a phone booth and calling a friend. And she actually called me that night. And she said, when I saw that on TV, I thought of you. And I thought of that afternoon when you called me because you ran out of the restaurant. And so these memories can come back to us. And sometimes we wonder... Did that really happen? Did anything that horrendous and abusive and violent and sleazy really happen? And I think that the Cosby trial and the Me Too movement is yeah. is giving us permission to validate that, yes, these these events, not only did they happen, they happened to millions of us. And, and I think,
5: yeah. Um, You know, I think one of the things that came out of the trial, one of the things that I observed was each of the witnesses, this was in the second trial, had an opportunity to testify. and, And none of the other accusers were allowed to be in the courtroom when they were testifying. And what I kept saying to myself over and over, as each of them stood on the stand, was they're all saying the same thing. They're all describing what was done to them, they're all describing the, the impact, the, the way that it affected them for decades moving forward. And when I think of Me Too and I think of all the messages that people are posting, the part of us that wants to say what you're saying, like this can't be so, this, this couldn't have happened to me. I think what Me Too, hashtag Me Too and Cosby and Weinstein, what it does is it affirms that while we wished and we hoped that these things didn't happen to us and we found ways to disconnect when they were happening, it reminds us that yes, it is actually possible that these things happened and it didn't just happen to me. It happened to so many other people and to know that I'm not alone in this experience in how I dealt with it and I'm not alone in this experience and how it makes me feel 10, 20, 30 years later that is empowering and that's freeing and that's part of what's helping people, more and more people and men too, women and men to step forward and talk about their history with abuse.
4: I think that's really quite profound. And um, as I talk about in, in my book, the first gift is humility. And I think that humility is what you just described. It's the realization that these horrendous experiences are um, unfortunately, part of the human experience. Uh, women, you know, going back to the Bible and even earlier, have suffered and endured uh, sexual domination, and uh, men who have won wars and risen to the top, you know, that the perks of power always included grabbing wenches and begatting children, and it's kind of imprinted in male DNA that this is an entitlement, and now... We're beginning to change that, and I'm really grateful that we're able to be speaking today with one of the pioneers of the uh, women's empowerment movement, the standing up to power and challenging uh, the entitlement that men have had for so many years. And I'm not saying that all men who were accused are guilty because They're accused. I think we have to be careful about that. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that um, sexual abuse in the workplace by men in power has been a characteristic and a hallmark of um, the the politics of power for a long time. And now we're just beginning to have a, a say and a chance to begin to change some of that. So we'll be back in just a few moments with my guest, Shari Botwin. Uh, This is Dr. Laurie, and I'm filling in for Patty Conklin here on Healing Within.
9: Just Like Sugar comprises a perfect blend of chicory root fiber, natural calcium, natural vitamin C, and Just Like sugar, sweetness comes from the natural flavors from the peel of the orange. Just Like Sugar is a natural alternative to harmful artificial
7: sweeteners and will... We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast but the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito or hash browns, choose two for 250. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
8: Now it's time for a plant fact. Roses are one of the oldest ornamental plants in cultivation, with a history going back over 5000 years. The philosopher Confucius wrote about them. And Roman emperors treated their guests to dining on carpets of rose petals, with thousands more raining down from above. Become a part of this epic history by planting a proven winner's rose. Just look for the white containers at your local garden center or visit provenwinnerscolorchoice.com.
9: Change the way that you believe all natural sweetener products taste. Just Like Sugar is available at your local Whole Foods markets, Wild Oats markets, Henry's, Sun Harvest, and many other fine natural food stores in the U.S., Canada, and worldwide.
1: Free video on demand, live streaming events from around the world, interactive online network, and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simo TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simo TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today.
4: Uh, welcome back. Uh, this is Dr. Laurie um, sitting in for Patty Conklin on Healing Within. And we've been speaking with trauma expert Sherry Botwin, who is the author of a wonderful new book uh, called Thriving After Trauma Stories of Living and Healing. Um, Sherry, before we uh, go forward here in our final segment, uh, where can people reach you?
5: People can find me. Online at my website, www.SharryBotwin.com. That's S-H-A-R-I-B-O-T-W-I-N. They are welcome to email me at S-H-A-R-I-L-C-S-W at Comcast.net. And of course, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And easy to find Oh, that's great! Um,
4: Sherry's really got her social media presence uh, together, and congratulations—it's not an easy thing to do these days. So, um, I really admire you for that. Um, wanted to get back into—we're uh, we talking about sexual trauma—and unfortunately, this is something that a lot of kids experience, and it, it, I think it would be really helpful if people listening knew what. What are the indications? What are some of the signs that parents and teachers can look for um, in a, when 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 a kid shows up in school and they they've been coping with um, abuse by an older sibling or a relative or um, as one of my clients was sexually abused by an uncle who was also a preacher who uh, threatened to kill her and told her she would go to hell if she ever told her parents since she was eight years old. Uh, what are some, and I'm sure you've heard stories that are um, equally or even more horrifying, but unfortunately th- this is this is everyday life for millions of kids. Um, what can what can parents and teachers look for and how can they address it?
5: So I think what I would pay attention to is the kid or the student who is looking very distracted and not present, noticing if the kid is seeming socially isolated, withdrawn, having a difficult time connecting with their peers, and also paying attention to things that they say. If there's a kid who is starting to talk about subject matter that seems inappropriate for a small child or a young child, that would be a red flag. I think the other thing to be watching for is kids who are acting out, kids who are hurting themselves, hurting other kids, bullying kids. While, of course, not all all bullies are being abused at home, there certainly is a, a good chance that that could be happening. So to just really watch, and I think to... Look for the kid who also is struggling with self worth, self esteem, anxiety. It's one of those things where everybody reacts to abuse differently, but if you see a kid in your environment that just doesn't seem like they're okay and you have a gut feeling about that, usually that's the truth. So, what are how would you bring it up with the kid? I mean, how would you?
4: um address it in a way that uh where the kid feels safe where the kid is not likely to uh distance themselves even more himself or herself even more
5: i mean i think it depends i know with teachers there's trainings that they have to go through and i know that at this point they're mandated to report any any cases where there's even the possibility i think as a parent i have an almost 9 year old I think a lot about how do I talk to my kid or how can I help my friends or my patients recognize if something is going on or talk to someone else's kid if I think something is going on. And I think what's most important is just to check in with kids, not necessarily ask them directly, is somebody hurting you, but to start conversations with kids about, do you feel like everything is going okay If you ever felt uncomfortable in a situation, do you feel like you could say something, even if you couldn't tell me? Do you feel like you can talk to somebody? To be able to just give kids permission to reach out and not expect them to be able to describe or identify if they are abused or being abused. Because usually kids don't even, they don't really understand what that means, especially sexual abuse. It's such a confusing topic for even adults to comprehend that kids certainly cannot find those words. So really just to encourage them that they can talk to people, they can find an adult if they feel like something isn't right even if that's all that they can say I feel like something at home isn't right and then to make sure that we get kids in the proper care in the environment where they're talking to somebody that's trained who can really ask questions in a way that's, that's going to make them feel safe in a situation that certainly is making them feel unsafe. And, and what kind of questions? I mean, really you start with asking them if they feel like everything is okay and then just start talking with them about if they feel like there's anybody in their life that is touching them or talking to them in ways that make them feel uncomfortable. Usually kids from a pretty young age can feel in their bodies if they're being touched in a way that's not safe. To, to talk with them about who can touch you, who's allowed to touch you, and who shouldn't be touching you. That's something that I know pediatricians are talking to kids about now. And I know that as a parent, it's something that because I'm so informed about the topic, I'm very aware of the fact that I need to be talking with my little guy about what is okay and what isn't okay. And I noticed that he's able to identify if something doesn't feel okay. So to really talk with parents about how to go about doing that, sometimes it's not about questions. It's just about having a conversation. There's books out there that people can get. There's ways that we can talk to our kids. And I think it's also important to recognize Every kid is different. What works for my kid is not going to necessarily work for somebody else's kid. So to also be aware of who your kid is or who the kid is that we're talking to and try to work with what information we have. What's really most important is just creating a space where kids can either draw or communicate or express in any way that they can if something is not okay. Questions don't always work. Uh, that's a
4: good point. I know that, that asking kids direct questions, especially when they get a little bit older, um, doesn't doesn't really work as they feel like they're on trial or that they're going to be challenged or graded in some way. But um a little bit of a devil's advocate question here. What about kids um and I've seen this as well, who make up stories or or pretend that they've been sexually abused to get somebody's sympathy or to manipulate um, an adult or to threaten, they'll threaten to call uh, the police if uh, the parent says, um, if the parent gets angry at them and threatens to take their iPhone away and they'll start screaming child abuse and they'll threaten to call the police. Or in one case, I was actually in somebody's home where um, it was Christmas, and um, the dad touched her shoulder to thank her for um, giving giving him a, a sweater as a Christmas present, and uh, she called the police. And I was sitting right there, and uh, she started screaming that he, she'd been sexually molested or sexually abused. How do you? Uh, what do you recommend that? Uh, parents or teachers can do in those situations
5: i mean i think what we have to do is we have to try to make kids understand there's there's a way to play a joke and there's things that we just can't be joking about and to remind them that as soon as they start talking about anything that has to do with a kid's on safety whether it's abuse or any any type of harm that they're they're putting themselves and the people around them at risk to being accused of something that's not happening you know unfortunately kids they they don't understand the magnitude of what these words mean and i think to just really teach them from a very early age it's one thing to you know be funny or want attention and it's another thing to put yourself or somebody or in your you know in your family at risk and some kids are going to understand and some kids aren't but i think it's a conversation even with things like suicide you don't you don't want to be joking about things that are so serious in nature and we just have to talk to them and we have to talk to them until they understand the uh the magnitude of the or the danger that 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 could present to them and hope that that they don't continue to do that
4: well I think that's an excellent point and and uh you know the takeaway uh from this is when it comes to trauma don't isolate talk if you suspect that someone's been traumatized uh, find a way to introduce the uh, a level of safety. Um, ask if they're doing okay. Ask if there's anything that they need, and uh, watch out for kids who isolate or become distracted. Um, I wish we had a little bit more time to continue, but I thank you, Shari Botwin. That's sharibotwin.com, and uh, please check out her book, which is um, Healing After Thriving After Trauma um stories of living and healing this is dr laurie Nadell. dr laurie i'm sitting in for patty conklin here on healing within and you can check me out at laurie that's L a u r i e n a d e l.com. Uh, wishing you a great week and uh be sure to go out there and vote if you're in a state that's voting today uh thanks a lot and uh see you again have a great day